Last week we started uh, our Advent series, and in Advent what we're celebrating is the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, the coming of God in flesh. He took on flesh and He came as an infant born in Bethlehem. And uh, during this season we're looking at uh, children in particular. Last week was our dedication Sunday, and so I, I started a little series on that. And uh, we're going to look at Mark 10, uh, 13 through 16 this week and next week. Uh, we might even look at it on Christmas Eve. I've got some ideas. Christmas Eve always changes like 3,000 times in my mind. Uh, so I've learned not to tell you what I'm going to preach on on Christmas Eve because really I don't know until Christmas Eve. Uh, but I think we might be here for that as well. And uh, really I think this text shows us three things or three things that I want to, us to learn from it. Uh, number one is what parents should do what the church should not do, and what Jesus wants to do. What parents should do, what the church should not do, and what Jesus wants to do. And this week and next week, we're really just going to look at uh, number one for the most part, which is what parents should do or what parents ought to do. Now, you might look at me and say, Blake, how can you tell people what parents ought to do? You've been a parent for two months. And uh, I would say, you are very right. Uh, That's why I'm going to the best of my ability to stand on the Word of God, and I'm not going to give you tips or tricks, because I don't have tips or tricks. And if you have tips or tricks, give them to me, because I need all the tips and tricks that I can get. I want to look at things kind of in, in the grand idea of things, of what I think parents ought to do. And I believe in this text... It gives us what the supreme thing that parents should want for their children. The top value that you should want for your children is found here in this text, I believe. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at. And I'll begin by asking you this before I pray and we jump into it. What is the thing you want for the kids in your life? Now, I know some of you aren't parents, but you all have kids in your life, whether you're an uncle or an aunt, a grandparent or a kid that you love. What is the number one thing you want for them? And I believe that a lot of us would say things that society would say, such as, you know, I want my kids to be happy, whatever that means. You know, I want them to grow up and be happy children. Uh, Or you might say, I want them to grow up and be financially secure, wealthy, intelligent. I want them to be successful. I want them to play in the NBA or the NFL. I don't know what you'd put at the top priority. But what I believe ought to be the top priority is that your children would come to know and love Jesus Christ. Supremely. And I would go so far as to say, As much as it would hurt my heart, I would rather my daughter have an unhappy life for a while and know Jesus than have a happy life and not know Jesus. That is how important this ought to be to us. How supreme this value ought to be to us. And if it's not to you, I think there's probably three reasons why it is not. And those are the three things that we're going to look at in this sermon. Let me pray for us first and then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you so much for the gift that children are to us. God, as we said last week, often the world would view children as a burden. And oftentimes, Lord, in the the thick of parenting, when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when our kids aren't obeying, when things aren't going the way that we want them to go, we might be tempted to believe that our children are burdens. But they are not, Lord. According to your word, they are blessings. God, you have blessed us with children. So we pray, God, that you would help us as parents have wisdom to raise them in the way you would want them to be raised. And God, we pray above all, that they would know you, that they would love you. God, we pray that you would bring all the prodigal children who are far from you home so that they might worship and praise you. God, may this be the desire of our hearts as parents. Jesus, I pray for your help as I preach. God, I can't preach without you. I have nothing to give if you do not help me this morning. Jesus, I love you and I praise you. Amen. Amen. One of the uh, things that I hadn't noticed about this text, uh, and it's just my fault because I've read Mark chapter 10 a whole bunch. Uh, I, I would actually consider Mark 10 probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. I love it. I've preached several sermons on it. And, and yet, uh, one thing I did not notice about this text was that the parents were bringing their children to Jesus. 
Now, in my mind, you guys are smarter than me, so you probably noticed this a long time ago. But in my mind, it was always the children going to Jesus on their own. Like, I, I had this picture in my mind that the disciples were kind of pushing the children back, and, and the parents were like, oh, it's so embarrassing. Please leave the rabbi alone, and they're pulling him back. That's not what's going on here at all. It's the parents, it's the people that are bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them and bless them. And we find out what that means uh, at the end there in verse 16. To touch them means that they're putting their children in the arms of Jesus. He's taking them and he is blessing them. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, it uses the word for infant. These are infants being carried to Jesus. And the parents are saying, please, please, disciples, let us get past you to Jesus so that Jesus might hold our children and bless them. And this should be our job as parents. The number one thing you want to do is to get your children to Jesus so that he might bless them. Now, you cannot make your children believe in God. But what you can do is you can bring them to Jesus so that he might bless them. So that he might make the scales fall off of their eyes and they would come to know and love Jesus. Now, next week we'll talk more about how that actually happens. You know, you might think, well, it'd be great if Jesus was physically here like I'm physically here. You know, I I can't take my children to Jesus and literally put them in his arms because Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's ruling and reigning over the entire universe. So we'll talk more about what I mean when I say bring your children to Jesus next week. But this week I really want to focus on the why. What is the motive for us wanting to do this? Why are we so concerned with our children being before Jesus and being blessed by Jesus? And I'll look at it in the negative sense, meaning I want to look at it from the point of view of somebody who's not really passionate about their kid knowing Jesus. Like you wouldn't say, yeah, cool, you know, I want them to believe in Jesus, but I don't really care that much whether or not Jesus blesses them. One of the the dumbest things I've heard said, and I say dumb lightly, I think a lot of people are, are really just ignorant to the fact of how important it is, but, but people will say to me, and uh, usually I just nod along and say, okay, because I'm not interested in an argument, but they'll say, uh, and these are Christian people, they'll say, Blake, I don't really care what my child believes. I want them to find their own faith in life. You know, I don't care if they're a Buddhist or a Muslim. I just want them to grow up and, and be happy and to uh, you know, have their own kind of faith. I have my faith and they can have their faith. I'm not really concerned with it. And the reason why I say that is dumb is for the three reasons we're going to look at today. It is very dumb because you do not understand the condition of your child's soul. You don't understand the problem that they are in if you say that. And you do not understand the goodness of Jesus Christ if you say that. If you knew how bad their problem was, how bad their soul was, and how good Jesus was, the depths of their sin and the heights of His grace, then your number one priority, without a doubt, would not be that your children find their own way, but that your children would find the way, Jesus Christ. The first thing that we're going to look at is they don't understand the condition of their child's soul. So if you're not depressed, hopefully in the next 15 minutes I'll fix that for you. That was a joke. I don't want you depressed. Uh, Man, you guys are cold today. Tough, tough crap. That's fine. I'm up here alone. Number one, they don't understand the condition of their child's soul. Uh, One thing I know about my child is that she is a sinner. Now, it is hard for me to believe she's a sinner because I have never seen her sin. She is absolutely, positively innocent. And yet I know she is a sinner and she will sin. You know how I know that? Because I am her father. And if my DNA is in her, then I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she will be a sinner. It will not be long after her first word that she utters her first lie. It will not be long after she learns how to grab onto things that she'll begin grabbing things that she should not grab onto. It will not be long after her first step that she will begin walking places we have explicitly told her not to walk. I know she is a sinner, and because I know that, she will sin. And this is exactly what the Bible says about all of us. 
need to understand that I don't call you guys sinners because you have sinned. You guys sin because you are sinners. This is what Psalm 51.5 says. It says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And that is a severe problem that I don't think we all really fully understand. That we are sinners. That at the end of every confession we make to God, when we confess all of our sins to Him, we always have to add on to it. And forgive me for the sins that I don't even know I committed because of my ignorance. That on the day of judgment, when it's revealed to us, our sin will be even deeper than what we could have ever imagined. God knows the depths of our sin better than we know the depths of our sin. And sin causes a lot of problems that break my heart for my little daughter. Sin, if not dealt with, will cause her much brokenness. The first and foremost thing, and I could do a whole list of things, but I'll just give you three, is that my daughter will incur a penalty against God. That there will be a debt that she is unable to pay because of her sin. The Bible says when we sin, we're trespassing against God. And uh, you can think of it like this. If you own property, uh, you probably have a fence or some kind of boundary marker that says this is my property. And when you cross this boundary, you're in my property. Now, if somebody crosses over that boundary when you haven't invited them to do so, we call that trespassing. And you can rightfully go to a judge and say, this person trespassed against me, and justice would say that they deserve some kind of penalty. Now, it might depend on what they did when they trespassed, but trespassing is saying, this was mine, and you crossed the boundary. Well, friends, everything you see and everything that is, is God's. The the air in your lungs is God. The money that's in your bank account is not really your money. It is God's money. And when you die, it will go to somebody else. And so when we sin, we are sinning against the God who owns everything. God's laws have been set up as boundaries. He says, don't cross this or you have sinned against me. And what all of us do, the guy in the pulpit probably first and foremost, is oftentimes I think I know what's best for me and I cross over those boundaries. I trespass against them. And there's something in me that's broken. I I sin a lot easier than I could pursue righteousness. You know, we're like a car that's bent out of alignment. Uh, you are bent towards sin. You're driving down the road. This is how my Subaru is right now. Uh, my, Subaru, my Subaru's been through a lot. And uh, I have to like turn left to go straight down the road. Well, this is how it is when I'm pursuing righteousness. I have to fight really hard to be righteous. But if I just let go of the wheel, guess what? I end up in sin. I trespass against God's law as it is something in my nature. And this is not just true of me. It is true of you. And it is true of our children. It is true of my sweet little innocent Blakely who has done nothing wrong. She is a sinner, and she will sin, and when she sins, she will have a penalty against a holy God. And God does not cut breaks. In the throne room of God, God is a just and a good God, and so He must give us what we deserve. Do not be fooled. On the day of judgment, when everything comes to a conclusion at the end, and we are standing before the judge, God will not grade on a curve. He will not say, well, you tried pretty hard, so I'll make up the rest. He will not say, well, I knew that you guys were weak, and so I'll just cut you a break here or there. No, on the day of judgment, the righteous will be given the gift of eternal life, and those who are not righteous will be separated from God forever. There is no cutting of a break with a just God. And that terrifies me for my daughter. If she does not have a Savior, if somebody does not stand in the gap for her, if somebody does not pay that penalty and give her the status of righteous, she is doomed. And Hebrews 10.31 tells me it is a terrifying, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What you need to understand is in our own condition, we are enemies of God. You know, we say things like God loves everyone. And in a general sense, that is true. But in a whole nother sense, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. That there are plenty of people who are enemies of God because they have trespassed against God and they have hurt the thing that God loves the most, which is his people. And on the day of judgment, they will get justice. 
which is good. I mean, I want that. I want those who are rapists to get judgment. I, I want Hitler to get judgment on the day when it comes around to it. You know, I don't want God to let people like that off the hook. But the problem is, is we are judged by a standard of total righteousness by which all of us fall short. The Apostle Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one. And that includes my sweet little Blakely, and that includes your child. There is a blessed, there is a curse rather that is upon them because they have sinned against God. And they will have to pay that penalty unless they have a Savior who does something about it. And not only is there a penalty, but there is a power that sin has over us that we are not able to break. Uh, the Bible would say we are enslaved to sin. Uh, in Ephesians, it talks about how what this looks like is we are destined to give into the inclinations of our flesh and of our thoughts. Which, when you look at the world who doesn't believe in God, you can see this play out all the time. And honestly, if you look at your own life, you can see it play out too. But what we are without God is we're kind of like driving in a fog. I thought about that this morning as I was driving here. There was, there was this fog that I was in. I could only see a little bit ahead of me. And so I didn't know what trouble lurked around the, day, around the corner. I was just kind of going by memory to get here. And that's how a lot of the world lives. We make decisions based upon our knowledge. We think that we're God and we know what's best, but in reality, we don't know anything. We can barely see what's ahead of us, and we do not know the dangers that are to come. One of the, the biggest pieces of advice this world will give you is to follow your heart. Follow your heart. And in one sense, that's the only thing you can do. All you can do is get the knowledge that you have and follow what you think is best. That, that's how you have to make decisions, especially if you do not have God. But the problem is, is that Jeremiah tells us that the heart above all is deceived. And that when we do what we want to do, what we think is best, oftentimes, you know where it leads us? It leads us to death. We think we know what would be best. And then we do it and it turns out and it's terrible. And if we were to pull up a microphone and you were to come up here and share stories, you could all share a story of a time you were 100% certain the thing you were doing was right. And it turned out you were wrong and it led to death in your life. And this is what happens to all of us. We're enslaved to sin, and we have no, nothing else but to do but to follow the power of the air, which is uh, led by the ruler of this world, Satan himself. And my daughter would be powerless to sin if she did not have a Savior to save her. But when I was driving through the fog, you know what happened? There was this brief moment where it cleared up, and I could see everything. And what we need is a Savior. We need somebody who can help us clear all of it up, who can lead us into what is right so that we might see what is good and what is true. But on our own, we do not have that. We are powerless to our sin. Your child is as well. And number three, finally, is the sin in this world will render our children hopeless. They have no hope unless they have a Savior. Do you realize where we are all headed? We are headed towards death. If there is no God who loves us, if there is no God who will resurrect us, we have nothing to hope in. All we can do is entertain ourselves mindlessly to try to avoid the fact that we are mortal, which is what a lot of us do very well. We try not to think about the end, and we're shocked when somebody we love dies as if we didn't know it was coming, when we all knew that it must be coming eventually in the back of our minds. But we don't want to think about death, because there is no hope in death. We will rot away, and our bones will turn to dust. And the people who have hope that is separate from God, I have no idea what they're putting their hope in. Because if all we have is science, if all we have is this was all a big accident and there is no God who loves us, then what I know is we're all going to die. Our generations below us are going to die. All of our children are going to die. Their children are going to die. And one day, 10,000 or a million or whatever, how many years it is in the future, the sun is going to explode and all humanity will destroy itself if we do not destroy ourselves before then, which I'm not so sure of these days. There's no hope in that message, is there, friends? And yet that is the only message you have if you do not have a Savior. 
If there is not a conqueror who will come and defeat death itself, we have no hope. My daughter is an enemy of God. She is under the power of Satan, and she has no hope unless she has a Savior. And your child is the exact same way. And I'm telling you all this to give you a certain sense of urgency to get your child before the only one who can solve these problems. See, I I think if you understood the problem that your child had, you would have a lot more urgency about getting them in front of Jesus. But what we often do is we just see the physical body. We see their physical pain, and that's what moves us. But what you need to understand is Jesus said the soul is much more important. He said, don't fear the one who can only kill your body. Fear the one who can destroy your soul. And that is what we must be worried about, is the spiritual health, the soul health of our children. It's kind of like if there was a big tsunami that was coming, and you knew it. Uh, Tsunamis are really dangerous because it happens, it's an earthquake in the ocean, and out of nowhere, it could be a beautiful sunny day, out of nowhere this huge wave comes and engulfs the whole beach, and a whole bunch of people will die. And it would be like as if if you were on the beach, and uh, you're sitting there, and you're reading a book, and all of a sudden God gives you a vision. And in the vision, you see the tsunami coming. And then you look out, and 50 feet in front of you is your daughter playing in the ocean. Playing right there on the edge, building a sandcastle or something. Something tells me that if you had this vision and you knew it was going to happen, you would not keep reading to the end of the chapter of the book you were reading. You you would not take your time to gather up your belongings. You would not walk over to your child in kind of a, a very nonchalant way and say, come on, let's go. No, you would throw everything to the side and you would run as fast and as hard as you could at your child. You would grab them, leave everything else behind and get them to a place of safety. And what I want you to feel is that same kind of urgency. And the place of safety is Jesus. I've got to get my child to this place of safety. I've got to get them before Jesus so that he might touch and bless them. That is what we ought to feel when we think about the problem that our child has. And their problem is sin. Now, that's the depressing part. But on the other side of that, when you realize the problem of your child's sin, that doesn't do anything for you. That would be a depressing sermon if, if I prayed for us and we left at this point. The good news is, and the other reason why we ought to, beyond all else, try to get our child before Jesus, is because of the power that is in Jesus. We've got the problem of our child, but we've also got the power of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus. All the good things that come in Jesus that you cannot find anywhere else. And friends, I could start right now preaching about all the glories in Jesus. All the joys that are found only in Jesus. And if I started right now and I preached for the rest of my life until I died, I would not even get 1% of the way through all of the glories that are found in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people will say to me, uh, Blake, do you think that we'll know everything in heaven? Like when, when all this comes to a conclusion, we're in the new heavens, we're in the new earth, well, we have the brain to know everything there is. And my answer to that is there's no way. There's no way we will know everything. Because for all of eternity, we will continuously be being amazed with the glory of Jesus Christ, the goodness of God. Because God is infinite. There will never be a time in which we say, oh, we know everything about God. No, for all of eternity, thousands and thousands, millions and millions and millions of years, we will be praising God for His goodness. We will be sharing glorious truths with one another. We will be seeing new things, hearing new things, and singing new songs to this God of this universe who is so great and so powerful. And all of these good things are only found in Him, and you only find them in Him through the Son, Jesus Christ. Your children need Jesus to experience all of the joys that are found in God. And without God, there are no joys. At the end of this life, if we are separated from God, there is no joy. All things that we might have joy in are found through Jesus Christ. 
But let me look just at the the three things uh, that I said were a problem and how Jesus fixes those things. The first thing I said was that my daughter is an enemy of God, and your child is too, by their nature. Jesus Christ comes, and He is the one who is righteous. The reason why Jesus was born as a baby was so that He might live a righteous life and die an atoning death. That on the cross, if Blakely believes in Jesus, if she puts her faith in Jesus, she sees Him as supreme in her own life, she says, I believe in you, and she takes on the posture of repentance, following Jesus in all of her life because she loves Him. The moment she puts her faith in Jesus, all of her sin is wiped out because she no longer has the status of sinner. Because Jesus, who is the only one who deserved the status of righteous, the only one who deserved the eternal life that comes with the status of righteous, said, I will take on the status of sinner for Blakely Farley, for Blake Farley, and for your child as well. And he died for her on that day so that all of the wrath of God, all of the penalty of God might be paid for, and he gives her his status. Meaning Blakely, the day she believes, will become a daughter of God, a child of the Most High God. Now, if she believes that in her heart, which I pray all of us do, and this is why I need the gospel preached to me every week because I so easily forget it. If she believes it in her heart, it will change everything about her life. She will experience it in a way that radically changes the way she views the world. I mean, to make this practical, uh, one of the things I'm most concerned about for my daughter specifically, because it's a bad thing for all teenage girls right now, is social media. Uh, The teenage suicide rate has gone in direct correlation up with the amount of social media usage that has gone up in teenagers, and it's especially affecting teenage girls. And the reason why is they compare themselves ruthlessly. They compare themselves to other girls' bodies, and they they complain about what they have, and they criticize themselves, and they're always trying to, to measure up. But can you imagine if these girls actually believed that they were a child of the Most High God? That the creator of the universe, the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars and galaxies we don't even know about, says, I love you. I cherish you. I don't need the opinion of my fellow teenage girls when I've got the opinion of the God of this universe. Now again, there's believing that mentally and then there's believing it in your soul. There's, there's this, I don't need the love of some teenage boy trying to get me to do something that I don't really want to do because I've got the love of the God of this universe and he is forever pleased with me in Jesus Christ. Man, I want my daughter to have that. I hope you want your kids to have that. I hope you want them to believe that deeply because it will radically change the way they live their lives and it will radically change their eternity because they get the presence of God forever and ever and ever. All sins paid for, past, present, and future when you believe in Jesus Christ. This is the power that is only found in Jesus. Some of you guys don't look very happy. You'd look happier if I told you you won the lottery. But if you won the lottery, that would be in comparison to what I'm telling you right now. Number two is Jesus is the only one who can give us power over sin. He's the only one who can make that fog clear up. In fact, that verse I was referencing in Ephesians 2 says that we no longer are this way. We who are in Christ have been made alive. Now the world... See, we can look at the world the way that it really is. Because I'm not just looking at what I think is best or what I think is right. I'm looking at what God says. And He is eternal. He's given me His Word. He's given me His people. He's given me His Spirit that I might know, that it might be revealed to me what is true and what is not. And I don't have to give in to those inclinations. I don't have to give in to those flesh. Now, sometimes I do give in to the flesh. But that is not because I had to. That was because I was under the illusion or under the lie that I was slave to them. But I do not have to give in to my desires. I can walk away from them because of the power in Christ. And that is only found in Jesus. And finally, Jesus gives us hope for the future. See, because there's the presence of sin, there's the presence of death, and there is no hope. But in Jesus, we do have hope. Because Jesus says when he returns, he's going to conquer his last enemy. And that last enemy is death. 
there will be a day in which death dies. Jesus is coming on a mission and he's going to kill death. That is cool. I don't even know what that means really or what that looks like, but I know it's going to be awesome. And Jesus is the only one who's going to do that. And so as a Christian, this is what separates me in the world. I grieve like everybody else because I live in a world tainted by sin. I live in a world with childhood cancer. I live in a world where people kill little innocent children. I live in a world where there is pain and there is suffering. And my daughter will as well. She will live in a world where her heart is broken. And I'm ashamed to say that I know I will be breaking her heart one day. I will say something I should not say, or I I will do something that embarrasses her that I probably shouldn't have done, and it will break her heart. Her dad, who is supposed to love and protect her, will break her heart. I know that I will do that because I am a sinner. And it's not just me. Everybody she loves in her life will at one point in time break her heart. She will have friends that will betray her. She will suffer loss that she ought not suffer. My wife lost her mother at 13 years old. No one should have to go through that. This is not some kind of glib thing where I'm saying, look at us Christians, we have hope no matter what. Well, we do have hope, but that does not mean that we do not grieve. My daughter will grieve. She will be broken. But my hope is, is that if she puts her hope in Jesus, that he promises that one day all of those things that have broken her heart will be mended, that she will be healed in a way that only Jesus can heal her, that the hope she has is rooted in the fact that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah of the universe, the the Savior of all things. And he didn't just claim it, but he came and he died. They put him in a tomb and three days later he rose again. And this is why at every funeral that Blakely attends of a believer, she can know that when that person is going into the ground, it is just a seed of what is to become. We bury this person today and we cry over this person today. But because Jesus is risen, I believe one day this person will be risen. That this is just a shadow of what is to come. And so, yes, I cry, but I cry with a hope that the world does not have. I do not believe that the world's going to end when the sun explodes. I do not believe that we're going to kill each other and that'll be the end of everything. I believe that there is a Savior and I have hope that is rooted in Him and Him alone. Man, I want that for my child. Don't you? And the only way that they have that is by coming to Jesus. It's the only way. So when you understand the problem that your child faces and you understand the power of Jesus, your number one goal as a parent It's not that they'd be happy. Not that they have everything they want under the Christmas tree. Your goal is that they would see Jesus and they would love Jesus. And you want to get them before Jesus that he might hold them and that he might bless them in a way that you as a parent are incapable of blessing them. You you, you want them to know Jesus. You want to be like Jairus. Jairus is found in uh, Mark chapter 5. Jairus, uh, I don't know, I'm a redneck, so I probably pronounce his name wrong. But uh, the way I read it, it's Jairus. That's what we're going with. Jarius is a great example of what I think we all ought to be as parents. Jarius is a leader of the Jewish synagogue. And uh, you might not know this, you probably do know it, but uh, the people who hated Jesus were the leaders of the Jewish synagogue. They did not like Jesus. The Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders came together to conspire to kill Jesus. Uh, And yet here's a leader, so his friend group probably does not like Jesus very much, and yet he is coming to Jesus, and he's on his hands and knees, and he's earnestly begging Jesus to touch his daughter. He's earnestly begging for the blessing of Jesus. And you know what would make Jarius throw off all abandon and go for this guy whose friend group probably said he should not be around? The thing that made him do this was that he understood the problem that his daughter had and he saw the power of Jesus. His daughter was dying. In fact, by the time Jesus and Jarius got there, his daughter was dead. Severe condition for her to be in. And and Jarius, in this moment of who can help my daughter, 
Which I can only imagine, now as a parent with a daughter, how powerless one must feel when there's nothing you can do and you see your baby girl slipping away from life in front of you. And Jerry said, you know what, my last hope is I've heard of that guy. That guy who when blind people come to him, they see. When lame people come to him, they begin to walk. And I've even heard reports that he's laid hands on dead people and they've risen. So maybe, just maybe, if anybody can help my daughter, it'd be this Jesus guy. And he runs to Jesus because he sees the power of Jesus and he understands the problem of his daughter. And we see what he says. And this ought to be all of our attitudes. Mark 5, 22. It says, One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. That should be all of our prayers for our children. You know, you you pray for safety when they go on a trip, and that's fine. You know, but what you should ultimately be praying for your children is that Jesus would lay his hand on them so that they might live. Jesus, you bless my child. And it doesn't matter what I have to do. It doesn't matter how I have to embarrass myself in front of my friends. It doesn't matter what I have to give away. If I have to quit this job as a preacher so that my daughter would know Jesus, then I will walk away from this pulpit. If I have to move, if I have to spend money, whatever it takes, I want to get her before Jesus. And that should be all of our attitudes. What do I need to do for the sake of my family's soul? You know, if, if your child was sick, physically sick in the hospital, and they said to you, we need to fly uh, him or her to Oklahoma City to save their lives, something tells me you would not care about the cost of the helicopter. You know, it would be, let's go. Whatever we need to do, let's get them to Oklahoma City, and later we'll figure out what it costs us. But right now, do whatever it takes to save my child. Well, friends, we ought to have the same kind of urgency, in fact, more so of an urgency for the soul of our children, because the soul is far more valuable than anything that is physical. Now, those are the first two reasons. Uh, They don't understand the problem, and they don't understand the power of Jesus, and that's why they would say, I don't really care if my child knows Jesus or not. But the third reason is really, I think, the true reason for most people. Why most people do not get excited about getting their children before Jesus, but they do get excited about taking their child to some kind of sports camp, which I'm, I'm all for. You know, if your child has a gift in sports, I want my daughter to be excellent at sports. I hope she gets her mom's DNA and not mine. Uh, and if she has her mom's DNA and she's good at basketball, we're going to take her to camps. We're going to do whatever we can to support her in that. But I never want that to become my priority. I never want to get so distracted by all the other things going on. And it's so easy to do that, isn't it? Especially today. You want your kid in every single club that there is. You know, I want them to to know everything that I could possibly give them. And so you run yourself ragged. You run yourself thin. And and, and their spiritual faith and the spiritual health of your family kind of takes a back seat. Well, friends, may it not be so. You run as hard and as fast as you can with your children, but you never, ever, ever let their spiritual health become a secondary priority. You just, you don't do it. But I think the reason why a lot of people get excited about that and not so excited about things that would help their child spiritually is because they haven't experienced the touch of Jesus themselves. They haven't experienced His goodness. When I preach of the hope that I have in Jesus, when I preach of the the, the experiencing of the justification that I have in Jesus, that He looks at me and He loves me as His Son, and I believe it, when I preach of those things, it's foreign to you. You don't understand my excitement because you have not experienced it yourself. And if you have not experienced it yourself, then how could you ever have the expectation or the excitement that your child might experience it? See, when somebody tells me something like, Blake, I don't really care about the faith of my child, what it really tells me is that they do not have a faith in Jesus. Because if they understood the supreme goodness of Jesus, if they love Jesus above all else, then of course they would want their child more than anything to love him. 
And for some of you who are parents or grandparents today, maybe the thing that God wants to speak to you today is to see Jesus for who He is so that you would believe in Him. You would repent and you would be baptized and you would fall in love and experience all of these things that Jesus has. That you'd be overwhelmed with the depth of your sin so that you might be even more overwhelmed with the heights of His grace. You see, it'd be kind of like if you had some sort of rare genetic disease that didn't show up until you were 30 years old. You didn't have a single symptom until you were 30. And then all of a sudden, your body started falling apart. And you went to the doctor, and they said, I don't know how we missed this, uh, but a a new genetic disease has started in your family. You've got three years to live. Your body's going to fall apart. And we tested your son. Your son has the same disease as you. And you said, well, what can I do? How can I get help for this disease? And he said, well, there's really not much. There's one doctor across the country, costs a lot of money. It's a long way to get there. And he's got some experiments going on and it might work. And you load up in your car and you go down and you do these experiments. And you don't put your child in in harm's way until you know for sure it works. And you go and sure enough, the doctor knows what he's doing and you are healed of this genetic disease. Something tells me you would not go home and then say, well, when my kid turns 30, they can figure it out for themselves. You know, I'll let them discover what doctor they want to discover. They've got to go on their own journey. They've got to go on their own search to find their own doctor that will help them with this thing. No, you know what you're doing? You're grabbing that child, you're putting them in the car seat or the booster seat, and you're driving to the doctor. You'll take a loan out of the bank. You'll do whatever it takes because this person can help my child live. Friends, this is exactly what is going on. You have given a a disease to your child, and the disease is sin. I told you at the beginning, Blakely is a sinner, and I know it because she has my DNA. And I'm a sinner because I have my father's DNA and so on and so forth up to our father, Adam. Well, Jesus Christ comes so that we might be born again, that we would have a new father, that we would have a new DNA. And unless we are born again, then we will face the consequences of sin, which is death. And not just the physical death, but a death that is far beyond that because it's a death that is the separation from God. The separation from all things that are good and glorious in this world. And unless my daughter gets to Jesus, she has no hope. And so, friends, I pray that you've experienced the hope of Jesus so that you might want that same hope for your own children. And Tiffany, if you want to go ahead and come back up, I'm going to close uh, here as we'll pick this back up next week. I preached for 33 minutes. Really, this week and next week should be one sermon, but it would be an hour long. And uh, I just I didn't feel like you guys would want me to do that. But I do want to end uh, kind of here in the middle and just give a word to everybody. I put a lot of weights on your back, especially if you're a parent. Like th- there's a burden that you might feel. Uh, because I've talked a lot about what we ought to do and what we should do. And every time I talk about ought and should, you must know that we fall short. (laughs) Well, we're still sinners. Even though we are in Christ, we're still sinners. The best father falls short because we're all sinners. So when I'm preaching, I'm preaching above myself. I don't fulfill all of these things and neither do you. And so what that can do is it can crush you. And when I'm preaching a message, there's two things I want to do. I want to comfort those who are afflicted and I want to afflict those who are comfortable. But my fear is I will afflict those who are already afflicted and I will comfort those who are already comforted. What I mean by that is some people need kind of this kick to say, I need to prioritize my child's faith. And, and, and what you'll do is you'll say, oh, well, he's comforting me now and so I'm doing fine. There's nothing I need to do different. <laughs> no, you need to do something different. But what often happens is those who are already doing all they can to get their child before Jesus hear this message and they're like, oh, I got to do more. And you leave here with this weight on your shoulder that I don't want to leave with you. There's a difference in conviction and condemnation. And I pray you don't leave condemned. Condemnation will crush you. You leave here thinking how terrible of a parent you are. That's not what I want. I want you to be convicted. And conviction cleanses you. You say, oh, I see now. My eyes have been cleared. The fog is cleared a little bit more. I know what I get to do. And I thank God for showing me that. That's how I want you guys to leave this place. 
And also, I just want to give a quick word to those of you who have parent, are parents of adult children. Because I know when you hear a message on children or raising children, you might think, well, I blew it. You know, my kids are grown up. There's nothing I can do about it. And what I want you to know is that God loves your children, even as adults. And you can continue to pray for them and continue to be there. And regret will do you no good. You can eat yourself alive with regret. And I would say there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. God has forgiven you. And God will answer those prayers as you pray for those children. And you continue to love them even where they are now. And I think it's important to remember what uh, my favorite preacher said, Charles Spurgeon. He said, some of the worst men have been the children of godly parents. Sometimes we do all that we can do. And yet it's still not enough. So please do not think that I'm saying your parenting is the determination of your child's faith. We ought to pray for those who are far from God, whether they are three years old or 33 years old. And we will continue to pray for them. And you continue to be faithful and do what God has called you to do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. God, thank you for the blessing that children are. And thank you, God, that you desire to bless them. That we bring them to Jesus and Jesus will not turn us away. Jesus says that that the way we enter the kingdom is the way of the child. And you desire to take them into your arms and to bless them. God, give us wisdom to know what it looks like to bring them to you. And God, give us the motivation. And if there's anybody in this room who has not experienced the goodness of your grace for themselves, I pray that they would first experience that before they try to understand what it might be for their children to experience it. Jesus, we love you. Friends, if you would take about 20 seconds with your eyes closed and head bowed and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? And reflect upon what he might be showing you through this message for about 20 seconds. God, we love you and we praise you. I ask that you would give us the power to obey what you've commanded us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.